You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello, and again, welcome to the May 2023 edition of Editor's Picks. I'm Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, and welcoming you. I want to thank you for having taken the time to listen to this podcast. This month, I will begin by speaking to Dr. Claire Barber, the first author of a paper entitled, Investigating Association Between Access to Rheumatology Care, Treatment, Continuous Care, and Health Care Utilization and Costs Among Older Individuals with Rheumatoid Arthritis. Dr. Barber will review the important findings of the paper for you. Um, And so what did you find? So we had over 13,000 individuals in the cohort and the mean age was around 74 as we would expect and 63% were female. Um, looking just at the performance measures and who, who met what, just to, as an, as, uh, just to get a snapshot of that. So the majority met our access measure, and that's partly because of the way we define the cohort. So 94% had seen a rheumatologist within a, a year. Um, 63% had at least one annual rheumatologist visit for the period of, of follow-up. Um, 57% had an annual DMARD dispensation, and 60% had timely DMARD initiation. If we looked across all the performance measures, they were met for approximately a third of the cohort. Then when we looked at costs, um, sort of the annual mean cost for the cohort did seem to increase over our five years of follow-up with mean total direct costs for patients by five years, just under about $14,000 in in the 2019 Canadian dollars. And 22% of these costs were due to medications, 21% due to inpatient costs. And then that other group that I talked about, those other kind of catch-all group of costs um, were substantial. So they were about 30% of, of the costs. Then we examined uh, whether meeting the performance measures in the first four years following diagnosis was associated with total costs in the fifth year following diagnosis. To do this, we looked at um, multivariable linear regression models and uh, to estimate the log costs. And these results were determined uh, and reported in terms of the mean percent relative cost reduction or increase. And so we we looked at several covariates for this analysis in our fully adjusted models, including age, sex, income quintile, diagnosis period, uh, aggregated diagnosis group, the presence of a number of comorbidities, and you can read the paper to get a sense of what we looked at in health region. And in our fully adjusted models, access to rheumatology care and timely treatment were independently associated with lower costs, which is sort of the main take home message. Um, although uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, yearly rheumatology care and DMARD treatment were associated with higher costs, predominantly due to specialist visits and treatment costs. And so when we look at the kind of the, that percent uh, you know, difference in costs, uh, so costs for those not meeting access to rheumatology care were about 20% higher, and uh, costs for those not meeting the timely treatment were about 6% higher. And the main driver for cost savings for those who had all the four, for uh, performance measures met were kind of lower other categories. So including the complex continuing care, home care, long-term care. Um, but we also did see fewer hospitalization and emergency visits leading to also to lower costs. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Barber, who gave an overview of a paper entitled Investigating Associations Between Access to Rheumatology Care Treatment, Continuous Care, and Healthcare Utilization and Costs 
among older individuals with rheumatoid arthritis. And I hope you will listen to the complete interview I had with Dr. Barber and read the full-length article, which is now available on our website at www.jroom.org. The next paper to highlight is entitled Comparative Effectiveness of BNT162B2 and mRNA-1273 vaccines against COVID-19 infection among patients with systemic autoimmune rheumatic diseases on immunomodulatory therapy, and is by Cook and colleagues. The aim of this paper was to compare the effectiveness of two mRNA vaccines against COVID-19 infection in patients with systemic autoimmune rheumatic diseases, or SARDs, on a variety of different immunomodulatory medications. The authors reviewed the medical records of the Math General Brigham Healthcare System and found that 9,838 patients with a SARD were treated with a DMARD and or glucocorticoids, and they had received either the BNT162B2 or the mRNA1273 vaccines as their initial series. Patients were followed until a positive SARS-CoV-2 test, death, or February 22nd, 2022. They then compared the risk of breakthrough infection between the two vaccine recipients using time-stratified overlapping propensity score weighted Cox proportional hazard models. The demographic and clinical characteristics were similar in both groups with a mean age of 61 years at the time of receiving the initial vaccination. 75% were female, 54% had rheumatoid arthritis, and 74% were receiving a conventional DMARD and 43% a biologic DMARD. The investigators found that overall, 446 of 5,571 patients, or 8%, who received the BNT162B2, as compared to 329 or of 4,372 patients, or 7.5%, who received the mRNA-123 Oh, sorry, 1273 vaccine had a breakthrough infection. The corresponding time stratified weighted difference of breakthrough infection was 0.71 with very large confidence intervals of 0.7 to 2.2 per 1,000 patients months and a weighted hazard ratio of 1.12, again, with large confidence intervals of 0.9 to 1.39. When follow-up was censored prior to the Omicron variant becoming the predominant infection, there was a trend towards higher breakthrough 
risk with the BNT162B2 versus the mRNA1273 vaccine with a weighted hazard ratio 1.34 and again confidence intervals which crossed zero. The authors concluded that in their cohort of patients who were receiving a SARD as an immunomodulatory medication, the risk of a breakthrough COVID-19 infection was similar between the two vaccine groups. Kidney involvement is an important determinant of the long-term outcome of patients with antinuclear cytoplasmic antibody-associated vasculitis, or AAV, and many patients will develop end-stage renal disease. The next paper to highlight is a study by Neil and colleagues entitled Validation of the Antineutrophil Cytoplasmic Antibody Renal Risk Score and Modification of the Score in a Chinese Cohort, of which a majority of patients had myeloperoxidase, positive disease. The aim of this study was to determine the validity of the model to predict the development of end-stage renal disease in their cohort of 285 patients with AAB and kidney involvement using a model initially proposed by Bricks et al. in 2018. The cohort was studied retrospectively and all were biopsy-proven renal disease. Patients then were randomly assigned to the development set, 201, and the validation set, 84. The authors then calculated the BRICS renal risk score and then analyzed clinical pathologic data, follow-up data to develop a nomogram for the development of ESRD. The majority of the patients had anti PO antibody-associated AAV glomerulonephritis. Over a median follow-up of 41.3 months, 29.5% of the patients had developed end-stage renal disease. Using all the available clinical and pathologic data, and univariate followed by multivariate analysis, the authors developed a nomogram for the initial 201 patients in the development cohort, which was then validated in the remaining 84 patients. The final model for ESRD risk included presence of hypertension, serum creatinine level, urine protein excretion, and kidney biopsy features of glomerular sclerosis and interstitial fibrosis. Please read this article and the accompanying editorial by Dr. Sebastian Bates and Silke Bricks from the Royal Manchester Infirmary, Manchester University NHS Trust Fund Foundation entitled From Prediction Tools to Precision Medicine in Antineutrophil Cytoplasmic Antibody-Associated Vasculitis. 
This will allow you to determine if you feel the nomogram would be helpful to better inform your patients of their risk of developing end-stage renal disease in ANCA-associated vasculitis. Fibromyalgia is a significant cause of pain in some patients with rheumatoid arthritis. The AMOS study by Gorsuski and colleagues entitled Predicting Disease Activity in Rheumatoid Arthritis with the Fibromyalgia Survey Questionnaire, or the FSQ, Does the Severity of Fibromyalgia Symptoms Matter? They examined if the degree of baseline fibromyalgia symptoms in patients with RA could predict disease activity after 12 weeks. They followed patients with active arthritis for 12 weeks after either the initiation or a change of DMARD therapy. All patients in the study completed the Fibromyalgia Survey Questionnaire, or FSQ, score at the initial visit when they had either initiation or change of DMART, and again at the 12-week follow-up visit. DAS28CRP was measured at both baseline and follow-up visit to assess RA disease activity. Cohort consisted of 192 patients of 295 eligible with active RA who were part of the Central Pain in Rheumatoid Arthritis, or SAPIRA cohort. The authors found that the FSQ score was independently associated with an elevated DAS-28 CRP score at week 28 after DMARD initiation. In secondary analysis, that they found that the WP component, which is representative of spatial extent of pain, but not the SS component of the score, which is representative of the severity of somatic symptoms, cognitive symptoms, fatigue, and waking unrefreshed, was significantly associated with an increased follow-up DAS-28 CRP score. The authors concluded that higher levels of fibromyalgic symptoms weakly predicted worse disease activity after 12 weeks of treatment on a new or changed DMARD. The authors expand on their findings in the conclusion section of the paper and re review the clinical implications of their study. Previous studies have suggested that patients who trust their physician demonstrate better medication adherence, disease self-management, and a more favorable disease outcome than those who do not trust their physician. In a study entitled Effect of Communicative and Critical Health Literacy on Trust in Physicians Among Patients with Systemic Lupus Erythematosus, SLE, the Trump II SLE Project, by Oguru and colleagues studied if trust in physicians was affected 
by functional health literacy. This was a cross-sectional study which used data from the Trump to SLE study, which is an ongoing multiple multi-center cohort study conducted at five academic centers in Japan. The 14-item functional communicative critical health literacy scale assessed the three domains of health literacy and the outcome was trust in one's physician and their physicians generally using the five-item Wake Forest Physician Trust Scale. General linear models were fitted to the data. 362 patients were included in this cross-sectional study, and the authors found that trust in one's physician increased with higher health literacy, but decreased with higher critical health literacy. Longer internet use was associated with both higher communicative and critical health literacy. Authors concluded that rheumatologists need to improve their communication to better match each patient's individual health literacy, which then may foster increased trust and lead to improved self-management and outcomes. They also suggest that building the formation of a rheumatologist-patient relationship may negate the effect of high critical health literacy in building trust. The authors expand on these themes in their conclusion. The highlighted image in rheumatology this month describes an 80-year-old female who had a history of fever and pain for one week at the injection site of her third dose of the Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine. These features were accompanied by the development of livido reticularis at the injection site on her upper left arm the day following vaccination. She then presented to the authors 40 days after the injection with intense redness having gradually faded, but the pigmentation remained. A skin biopsy showed a mild infiltration with edematous changes with inflammatory cells around the small blood vessels of the superficial dermis to the boundary with subcutaneous fat. These findings were felt to be consistent with livido reticularis. The rash continued to fade without treatment. This month, again, we have an article for Panorama 360 Degrees of Rheumatology. This is by Rasmussen, Fredrickson, and Dancer, and it's entitled Inhibition of Local Inflammation by Implanted Gold, a Narrative Review of the History and Use of Gold. This panorama article makes for interesting reading on the history of gold from its initial use, which was discovered in Egyptian mummies, the mode of action of gold at a cellular level, 
and what the authors propose as its possible future use in rheumatic diseases. This month, we also have an expert review, which is entitled Stepping Forward, a scoping review of physical activity in osteoarthritis and is by White and colleagues. This gives an overview of physical activity in OA, including the terminology used, a summary of the importance of physical activity for adults with OA, and a discussion of the current gaps in the literature on this topic. As you are aware, this is the 50th anniversary of the publication of the journal, and I again be highlighting previously published articles that I figured are particularly important and interesting to the readership. This month, the decade I'm highlighting is the 1990s. Article I have chosen are entitled, A New Approach to Defining Ability in Ankylosing Spondylitis, the Development of the Bath Ankylosing Spondylitis Functional Index, and it's a company article, A New Approach to Defining Disease Status in Ankylosing Spondylitis, the Development of the Bath Ankylosing Spondylitis Functional Index. Third article is called Inter and Intra Observer Variability of Total Skin Thickness Score or Modified Rodnan TSS in Systemic Sclerosis. And the fourth article is entitled Preliminary Criteria for Classification of Adult Stills Disease. These articles are now available on our website as well as in the print edition of the journal, as is my editorial, which outlines why I have chosen these particular articles to highlight. I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and encourage you to read not only my highlighted articles, but all the articles of the May 2023 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print edition or the online edition, which is available at www.jroom.org. And please watch my interview with the author of the highlighted article of this month, but also our previous month if you have missed them. They are available both at our website and on YouTube. If you have any comments or questions of this highlight, the highlighted articles or any articles published in the May 2023 edition of the Journal of Ontology, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. And please listen next month to the June edition of Editor's Highlights and Hope. You enjoyed this podcast and you will listen in the future. Thank you.